You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. A friend of mine from Life in the Spirit, a guy called uh, John, who's a pastor in Sheffield, um, was telling me the story of his conversion, uh, how he became a Christian. Um, he was converted in his teens when he was about 18 years old. <laughs> And he had been a real prodigal son. He'd come from a very religious uh, background and um, he sort of got to about 13, 14 and became a proper tearaway, drunkenness, all sorts of shenanigans and uh, really wandered away from the Lord. And then a friend of his, when he went to agricultural college, shared the gospel with him and uh, he was converted almost instantaneously. His whole life turned around, change of character, change of everything. Immediately, on fire for the Lord, had a call to ministry, went to Bible college, and all that sort of thing. Well, it's a, it's a, it was really lovely to hear him say that. But the one thing that surprised me was that he'd grown up in a, uh, a Christian sect called, which I call it a sect, um, called the Gospel Standard Strict and Particular Baptists. <laughs> Anyone heard of them before? <laughs> the Gospel Standard Strict and Particular Baptists. And... Um, they kind of believe that they're the only ones with the, you know, with the truth, basically. And uh, but very, very conservative, very, very strict interpretation of the Bible, very narrow. But the remarkable thing about this conversion story was when he got saved, his father rejected him. They wouldn't accept it. Wouldn't, his father was a pastor, if I remember the story correctly. Wouldn't baptize him because uh, he felt that his sorrow for his past sin was not severe enough. And therefore, it wasn't a genuine conversion. And so my friend John went away to Bible College, uh, at London Bible College, the only student there who'd been officially excommunicated from his sending church, which was quite an unusual situation to be in. And, you know, his conversion was genuine. Of course it was. Well, I'll tell you that story because <clears throat> the, the, the thing I think God really wants to speak to us about this morning um, as a church is that it's really easy to miss what's important uh, when we get distracted by the wrong things. It's really easy to miss what's important when we get distracted on, by the wrong things. And, you know, just as John's father was really focused on a particular doctrine of repentance that had to accompany salvation and missed the, so sad, isn't it? Missed the wonderful joy of seeing his son come to faith in Christ and all the fruit of that. What a sadness that is. And uh, it carried on. I don't think they were reconciled. Um, so we can miss um, the most important thing in our faith. Uh, when we focus on the wrong things. And really, that's what's uh, going on in our passage. Uh, the people in Nazareth miss the really, really obvious good thing that's right in front of them because they're focusing on the wrong things. Have a look at, have a look at what's going on here. In the, there's this sudden change in verse 28. They all speak well of him. They see, they, they're so astounded, they sort of say, isn't this Joseph's son? From the context, we're pretty sure they're not sort of, you know, doing him down, they're sort of saying, it's astonishing that someone we know so well and has come from this family in this place is able to speak so eloquently. Remember last week, they're, they're all transfixed, gazing at him, waiting to see what he does next. And, and suddenly there's this, there's this turn in the passage where they, uh, this change of atmosphere, and all, all of a sudden they turn on him from rapt attention to, let's get ready. Well, they seize him, and they try to throw Jesus from the clifftop. What was at the heart of that change is that they were expecting something that was different to what God wanted to give them. They were focused on the wrong things and they missed the most important thing. 
They wanted him, it seems, to perform miracles. He had been doing that in the region around them, in Capernaum. That's what he says to them. You want me to, you'll say to me, do the same things here. And it seems that he refuses that request. It's not actually that clear whether he refuses absolutely or not, but they certainly interpret that that way. And perhaps more than that, he then begins to talk about God's favor to the Gentiles throughout Israel's history. And it's not entirely clear why they're so, so angry, but we could guess that it's because sentiment, their feelings about the Gentiles among the Jewish people in Israel at that time were probably so kind of anti, um, probably being occupied by Roman forces, by recent history through, uh, throughout the nation. You know, there was a, such a strong feeling against the Gentiles. They couldn't accept that this prophet who'd been doing these amazing things around them, A, wouldn't do the miracles they wanted, and B, was talking about you know, some, something to do with, they didn't really get the head right, something to do with how God wanted to bless these unbelievers, these pagans around them, rather than them. Quite a remarkable transformation, isn't it? From rapt attention to, let's throw him from the clifftop. The weird thing is, they should have been expecting him to say what he said. This message that God was interested in blessing the Gentiles through the people of Israel was not some novel thing that had never been mentioned before. It's there right from the beginning of uh, the, the nation, the birth of the nation through Abraham. When God changes his name from Abraham to Abraham, and he gives this explanation, for you will be called the father of many nations. It's there right from the beginning. Right from there, so many little details through the history of Israel, right through to, say, Isaiah 49.6, and Isaiah's preaching about the restoration of Israel. Um, and he says, "Is it? it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you, also make you, a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.6 says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's not a new message that Jesus is saying. And, and, and all along, God has been saying to the people of Israel, I love you, you are my special, my prized possession, my first people that I called, dearest to my heart, all those things. Yet, just as I had compassion on you in Egypt when you were in slavery, so my compassion will burst forth from you to call the nations out of slavery into salvation. And this message, which was the, the heart of everything God wanted to do through his people, was like just brand new to them. So new that they were like, what's this nonsense? Astonishing. Luke wants us to see that the, the Nazarene people's rejection of Jesus is like a, it's a miniature portrait, a microcosm of the wider rejection that Jesus faced among the people of Israel at the time. Many people were expecting the Messiah to come and heal the nation politically, socially, economically. But when he came, he actually came to fulfill this this central mission that the gospel would break out from one nation 
pull down the dividing wall of hostility and unite all the peoples of the earth under the one true living God. Um, and of course, the, this, the violence of the villagers to Jesus is a foreshadowing, it's a prophetic warning, if you like, of what's going to happen. This time, Jesus escapes unscathed because his time has not yet come, of course, and it's not the appropriate manner of his death. Yet at one point, he will be seized, not thrown from a clifftop, but nailed to a cross. And yet, even there, his escape is not away from death, but through death, through his resurrection. So there's this, Luke is, is highlighting the scene for us to show. So it's like a little prophetic vignette. A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown. It's the same thing that we find in John's Gospel again and again. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So they missed Jesus because they were focused on the wrong things. They missed the, perhaps the central theme of God's salvation. They wanted their own healing. They wanted miracles. Perhaps they were also blinded by this kind of disgust or repellence uh, towards the Gentiles. And so they missed the most important thing, <clears throat> that God intended to rescue the whole world through Israel. That's, I think, that's what's going on in the passage. Well, like last week, I want to give you a little minor application before we jump into the big thing. And just really, really simply, it's really easy for us to be angry with God when we have a solution in mind to something and he gives us something different, isn't it? When you're praying to God, please, can you fix this situation? Please, can you help with this financial problem or this decision I've got to make? Please open a door for me so I can go in this direction. We pray and we pray and we pray. Please, God, send your answer to this problem. And he gives us something different. And sometimes we, we can hold on so tightly to what we think is the answer to a situation that we miss it when it comes along. And if we hold too tightly to these things, instead of accepting what God wants for us, we can miss the better thing he has for us. And even we can turn and become angry to him, uh, towards him. I wonder if maybe you're in a situation like that this morning. Maybe there's something going on in your life, some difficult situation, some puzzle you're puzzling over. You're praying for God for an answer and he hasn't given you the answer that you want to hear. It's worth asking. Am I becoming angry towards God because he's not giving me what I want? Am I missing the better thing that he's doing in my life? the thing that I haven't asked for, but he as a good father wants to give to me. A little good application. And do you know what? I only had one little mind application, but I thought of another one on the way up here. <laughs> you know, sometimes God calls us to say or to do hard things, and we fear the consequences, don't we? But it's the right thing to do. And just Jesus gives us that prophetic uh, pattern that we are to follow. We're not to fear the consequences of bringing the message God gives us to. Sometimes we have to say something hard in love. Sometimes we have to share the gospel with someone we're really afraid of what they're going to say. Sometimes we have to confront uh, an issue of injustice. And we're afraid of what people will say to us, afraid, afraid what their response will be. Sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. God is our, our shield, isn't he? He's our strong tower. We can hide in him and God will deliver us from those things if we're faithful to the message he gives to us. So maybe again, if there's something God has called you to do or to say, don't fear. Just trust him and he will carry you through it. Okay.
So back to our big theme this morning. It's easy to miss Jesus when you're focused on the wrong things. Um, well, that can happen in lots of ways. You know, like uh, my friend John's father missed the big thing because he was focused on his really narrow interpretation of doctrine. He missed the good thing. We can, we can do that in all sorts of different areas of life. The one biggest way uh, I think that we see this tendency to miss what's really essential and, and uh, because we're focused on the wrong things is, is in the issue of our call to love one another. I know that's like a favorite theme. <laughs> But I really think this is what God would speak to us about. You know, all through the New Testament, there is this really obvious theme. Obvious like the, the God was going to uh, reach out to all the nations through Israel. Like that kind of theme. It's obvious it's everywhere. That God is really, really big on how important it is that as Christians we love one another. It's there all the way through. You know, you've got, um, you've got the first church modeling it in Acts 2. They're, they're sharing their possessions. They're spending time together. So you've got Paul's letters, which give us the, the kind of theory behind it. You know, consider others better than yourselves. You know, um, you've got the letters to the Corinthians where, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, that call to love is at the, at the center where he's saying, you guys are, you guys are focused on, you know, miracles and spiritual gifts and all sort of But, you know, the most important thing, the thing you should pursue above everything else is that you should love one another. <laughs> You know, Paul writes to the Colossians, above all these things, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. You know, it's just there through everything. You've got Jesus' words in the upper room before his passion. And he's speaking to his disciples and he, he just says, you know, if you obey me, I'm just going to give you these wonderful things. I and the Father will make our home with you. I'll give you the, the I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another counselor. And what are my commands? And he just, you know, takes everything he said and just sums it up. Love one another. Love one another. You know, I believe that the great thing God wants to do in our day is to reveal to his church more perhaps than ever before the importance of loving fellowship within a church. You know, I think it's almost more important than anything else. I think maybe it's like the very heart of what God wants to do in our generation, to reveal the importance of love um, for each other. If there's a, a secret engine at the heart of the next great move of God, it's simply this, that God wants us to treat each other as he has treated us. The problem is, it's easy to miss. It's just not flashy. It's not easy. It's like Andrew's marathon <laughs> that we talked about a minute ago. It's not easy. It doesn't capture our attention. It doesn't always meet our immediate needs. We can't, if, you know... In, give inspiring talks so easily about it as we could about a conference about miracles or a call to evangelism or something like that. And it's also that we're extremely biased against it as well. 
that we find it really, really hard to accept because of sin in our hearts. We find it, we're so easily inclined to not love one another that we almost miss it completely. It's almost like a brand new message every time we hear it. And, uh, you know, love one another is a big topic, but I believe that God would speak to us about one particular aspect, um, and that is our acceptance for one another. There's a, I heard a story once, you might have heard this before, about um, a young boy, uh, a guy who was on a flight, and he saw a young boy who was unaccompanied by adults. He had a, one of these special tickets where children can fly, and, you know, the flight attendants uh, kind of look after him, they chaperone the child until they meet their parents or guardian at the end of the soil. And this boy uh, uh, on the flight, I guess he was about nine years old or something like that, he got really, really travel sick and was sick all over himself. I know it's a lovely picture for you guys for a Sunday morning. He <laughs> was sick all over himself. And, and, you know, the flight attendants did their best to clean him up, but he didn't have a change of clothes or anything. He's there kind of in his kind of, you know, sicky jumper and everything. And he watched as the little boy got off uh, uh, the plane to meet his, uh, his father and uh, they, they kind of met on the tarmac because it was like a chaperone situation. And, you know, he saw this father see his son and kind of recognise that maybe everything wasn't okay. <laughs> and he ran towards him and picked him up and gave him a great big hug. You know, and uh, this, the story was told with, this, with the point I want to make to you this morning in mind, really, which is God's acceptance for, of us is just so unconditional, so wonderful. His acceptance to us in Christ is so incredibly extravagant. It just breaks down every barrier that would, would divide us from him. And he, he just goes so much further than we might possibly expect someone to go in order to rescue us. He overcomes the barrier of our sin, uh, the dirtiness of our sin. He, he takes our human flesh and comes into our, into our condition he lives among us. He, he comes to wash our feet. As our, our Lord and Creator comes to wash our feet and humble himself. Not just our sin, but our rebellion. That thing would just push us away from him. That tendency in us to disobey him and to, to run away. And he, he pursues us. He follows us. He comes alongside us in our, in our sin against him. He goes so far. He went to the cross to accept you. To take the shame that's on your shoulders, the rebellion that's within you. He went so far to accept you. you know, even, even that phrase we say in the creed that he descended into the grave or he descended into hell. It's, it's symbolic, isn't it, of how far God would go in order to accept you. To bring down that wall of division that stood between you and him. That would have sent you to hell apart from him forever. There is no length at which he will not go to. To rescue people from sin. That's his acceptance of us. Why does he do that? Why does God accept us so extravagantly? Because he knows that by accepting us so extravagantly, by giving us his love so freely and fully, not only will we be rescued from hell, but we will be transformed into Christ's likeness, filled with his love and shining with his perfect glory. Forever and ever, to the glory of God and His eternal praise. There is this first movement of love. 
for all the things that loving us involves for God. For all the things that loving one another involves. All the practicalities of how we do it and what we do and so on. That first movement is that acceptance. God has accepted us in Christ despite our sicky clothes. Despite our filthy sins. Despite us running away as fast as we can. He has accepted us. And his command to us is accept one another as Christ accepted you. If we want to build a community of love, if we want to tap into the the power of what God is going to do in our generation, if we want to, to be a place where God does amazing things, it's very easy for us to focus on the big flashy stuff that many Christians talk about. You know, even today I read just this, just this morning, just flicking through a news feed and, uh, a, you know, someone had linked to it, uh, this, this story and they say, you know, I believe in this, this year to come is going to be a year of miracles. God is doing a new thing. It's going to be a year of miracles. God's doing this amazing stuff. We have to have confidence. They linked this beautiful song. It was like, you're the God of miracles. I'm like, yes, yes, I'm all for that. But you know what? That's not the answer. That's not going to be how God wins the United Kingdom in 2019. It's going to start with love. And that love is going to start with our acceptance of one another. That's the answer. That's the the big thing God wants us to do. And we can easily miss it. Because we're looking for other things. And we can easily miss it because we so instinctively just overlook how important that acceptance of one another is. The uh, great North American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards talks about this about our lack of acceptance of each other. He says, there are always two sides to every story. And it's it's generally wise and safe and charitable to take the best. And yet, there is probably no way in which persons are so liable to be wrong. (coughs) There is probably no way in which persons are so liable to be wrong as in presuming the worst is true and informing and expressing their judgment of others and of their actions without waiting till all the truth is known. C.S. Lewis wrote about uh, a sin that kind of typifies this instinct towards rejecting each other, uh, towards a division rather than acceptance. He says, He said this, Um, Suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true. Or not quite so bad as it was made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment? And even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? If it's the second then it is, I'm afraid, the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish the black was a little blacker. 
If we give that wish its head, later on we shall wish to see grey as black and then to see white as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God and our friends and ourselves included, as bad and not be able to stop doing it. We shall, find, we shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. You know, Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis, they're pointing to the little things that so habitually come to us because sin is in our hearts, waiting to reject others, to bring division, rather than accepting. And they're saying, these are not little things. They seem like little things. But you see what C.S. Lewis is saying? That that instinct to put up a wall between you and somebody else, to not accept somebody, is actually... It's the first step on a road that leads to hell. Easy to miss because it's so habitual and yet profoundly important. And acceptance is the flip side of that. Easy to miss how important it is to say, do you know what? I know I feel like that, but actually I'm not going to indulge those feelings. I'm going to act in faith and hope. And that seems like a small victory. It seems like a, a little good thing that a Christian might do from time to time. But it's one of the most pure one of the most pure and wonderful and holy things that we can do is to accept one another. And in a community like ours, in a small church, it is these little things that God would say to us are so, so important. Our everyday way of acting towards one another. Our everyday way of thinking about one another and speaking about one another. Those temptations to, rather than accept, to build a wall that enables us to write someone off as not worth knowing or write someone off as, un, you know, there's no way I can get along with that person or write someone off so I don't have to spend time with them. And rather than accepting, we, we settle for these uh, simple, seemingly small things. And they, they come so easily to us. You know, I have said things and thought things that are just judgmental and rejected. And I've heard things, both as a member of a church and as a pastor, that are just nothing more than an excuse to write somebody off. The labelling of people saying such and such is, oh, they just, they just love playing games with people. They're just a game player. Such as, oh, they're just controlling. Or, you know, saying someone is unspiritual because we don't understand their behavior. (laughs) That's a good one. Rejecting someone because they're difficult to deal with, because there's a habit that's just, you know, hard to get around. I just like, we just, I can't understand where they're coming from. You know, and these things sound like small things. It sounds maybe even like nitpicking. But to do those things is truly the first step on a diabolical road. And God wants to say to us, I want you to put it behind you. That kind of behavior. It, it, you know, I, I imagine there were times in uh, the early years of Israel's history after they escaped Egypt when people would use an Egyptian word for something out of habit, you know, out of slavery. And, you know, as they did, you know, I don't know what it was, maybe they're cooking something and they, you know, drop something in a fire and they swear in Egyptian or something like that. And all the ears 
You turn around and, what is that noise? The language of Egypt. That's what God rescued us out, out of. That should be how we feel about divisive behaviour. Small and as insignificant as it may seem. It should be as out of place as the language as Egyptian among the rescued people of Israel. It should stand out like that. You should notice it. You know, it says in um, the Psalms, Lord, he may dwell in your sacred tent. He may live on your holy mountain. The one who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, and he does no wrong to a neighbour, and casts no slur on others. You know, love is hard. Love isn't this just, you know, isn't fluffy bunnies and feeling good about things. It's really, really hard. <laughs> Unity is hard. Accepting one another is hard. Learning, moving from acceptance to delight to rejoicing to true unity is, is really, really hard. And there are a thousand excuses along the way to say, you know what, this is not going to work. But God calls us to believe that what he has said is true and the way that he has acted towards us is trustworthy and that we should copy it in our behavior towards one another. It's not a fool's errand to, in, to invest again and again, to forgive again and again, to suppress those, those feelings of, of yuck again and again, and to pursue in relationship with one another, despite all the odds, despite the world thinking it's foolish and hopeless and naive and all those things. It's not. Because Christ accepted us against all hope, against all the odds, and will raise us up to be like him. We have to believe that God has put us in fellowship with people who are lovable. With people who will ultimately be glorious and Christ-like by the grace of God. Because that's how he's treated us, isn't it? So often, our behaviour is, you know, God calls us to treat each other like he has treated us, like the cross. That's our script that we're to follow. And yet, it's like we picked up a, a script from EastEnders. <laughs> we're judging and dividing. So easily distracted from what's true. Labelling and behaving immaturely. So here's what God is calling us to do, I believe. He wants us to believe that these small things are as big as I'm telling you. That they are not secondary. That these divisive instincts that rise up in us so quickly are not minor, but they are truly of the enemy. You know, I was going to do a, like a, a second application for you this morning. My application is going to application one, application three. <laughs> And my second application was going to be talking about like dynamics and groups and that sort of thing. You know, Nick preached about that a few weeks ago. And I'm not bringing this necessarily because, you know, I feel as a pastor we need to address this. I'm bringing this because this is God's word, just to reassure you. But I was going to talk about groups. But you know what? Actually, divisive behavior in groups where you kind of talk about someone who's not there, it's easier to spot. You know it's happening, right? You don't need me to preach about that. It's just there. And it's kind of like, it's like the elephant in the room and you just wait, you know, it's complicated. We don't, you know, sometimes people are just processing their, processing their thoughts. It's not easy to figure out what the right thing is to do, but we know it's happening. But those thoughts inside us, 
when we write somebody off, we label them as an excuse not to enter into a deeper Christ-like relationship with them, they're much harder to spot. It's those subtle individual temptations. I'm not going to associate with that person because it's too painful and you're actually giving up on a relationship. You label a person so you don't actually have to deal with them and move into unity with them. That's what God is asking us to look for and to decisively reject as unchristlike, unworthy of the people of God. So I want to challenge you. I mean, God, if what I'm bringing is from the Lord, then he's already speaking to you. Search your hearts and acknowledge those tendencies. And be on your guard. Ask God to sharpen your conscience with regard to the way you feel about people around you, the way you respond to people around you. You know, the feelings we have, the sin runs so deeply within us that this, this instinct to divide and to reject, to, to write people off and move away from them, to shield ourselves, is, is so strong because sin is so present in us. You will not be able to avoid those feelings. I was going to say from time to time, but all the time. But what can you do? You can apply the blood of Christ in front of you. You can think about them graciously. You can acknowledge that they're happening and say to God, I recognize this sin. I don't like it. Please, will you take it away from me? You can repent of it. You can refuse to act on it. You can refuse to do this thing or say that word. And you can ask God, save me from it. You know, I was sharing with a friend the other day. We don't always have these amazing, the deep spiritual conversations, but this conversation took a, a deep spiritual turn. And they asked me, what are you most looking forward to in heaven? And you know what? It's, I, I thought, you know what I'm looking forward to most in heaven? I'm looking forward to seeing every other Christian as God sees them. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing the Lord, but I'm looking forward to seeing you guys as God sees you. God calls us to make every effort in this life to see one another as he sees us. And in this life, we will not get there. We will make great strides by God's grace, but in heaven, we will see one another as God sees us, pure and whole and healed and perfected in Christ. And our hearts will be full and multiplied with joy. That should be our instinct. God, save me from hatred and division and bring me to your vision of unity and perfection. When we're tempted to give in, to think divisively, rather than acceptingly, to speak or to... We can choose to act with hope instead. Hope in that vision that God has for us. You can ask God, Lord, show me why I reacted like that to that person. If you find a person difficult to deal with, you can ask God for understanding and wisdom and strength and courage to know what to do and to do it in order to deepen relationship and work together with God's passion for our unity. Okay, so that's an individual response. Can I ask you for a corporate response as well? Take those a yes. <laughs> Every church has these things going on in them. It has. I believe that God wants to do something just so incredible. I don't know if it's in our church, I don't know, just in our church or elsewhere, 
It's definitely his vision for this church, maybe for other churches too, where this type of fellowship that I'm talking about, that begins with that acceptance of one another and taking seriously these things that seem so small, I believe God wants to do amazing things through that. I really, really, you know, who knows what he'll do. But it's so important for our generation, maybe prophetically important. It's so important, and I just want us to recognise its importance and kind of make it a kind of core value of what we're about as a church. Not just a vague, oh yeah, we love one another, blah, 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 yeah, but, you know, and maybe we can just kind of... But like uh, that, that light to the Gentiles' mission for Israel is the core of that identity. Abraham, father of many nations. So for us, it would be the core of our identity that we accept one another, that we avoid all hints of rejection and division. That we go so ridiculously far in hope in trying to, to build that unity that God will do amazing things among us. Can we do that? We have to recognise, if that's our vision, if that's part of our corporate response, the enemy will attack it. Yeah, Paul writes in... Um, uh, 2 Corinthians, he, he talks, you know, difficult situation going on in 2 Corinthians. Uh, all sorts of division and, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. Read your um, study Bible and you'll, you'll find out a bit more about what's going on. There. And in one of the first things he writes to them, he says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And he's bringing this acceptance. What I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven it in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? He says this, in order that Satan might not outwit us. You see, he's aware that the, the, the enemy will attack unity and acceptance of one another. You know, I remember um, when I was uh, fixing computers up in London, and I remember I was, I was doing a job for someone, and um, I uncovered a fraud. It was quite remarkable. The only, basically, the most exciting thing that ever happened to me when I was fixing computers. <laughs> and this fraud involved letters and fake payments and fake companies and all sorts of things. And basically, it's all designed to rip off my client and to promote another company that was doing the same thing. You know, and I worked it out, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how intricate it was. It was really, really, really clever. And it was so clever, I kind of felt like a conspiracy theorist when I presented it to the, to, you know, I was like, look at this, da 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 And it was very, very clear. But you know what? As a pastor, sometimes you, you face pastoral situations where there's disagreement between people. And when you uncover all the facts, there is an elaborate plot behind it all. But it's not any of you guys that have hatched it. <laughs> a diabolical mind behind it. A fraudster. A thief and a killer. We have to be aware that the enemy would... If unity is so important, if our acceptance of one another is so important, we have to be aware that the enemy would attack it. We don't want to be unaware of his schemes. Sometimes they'll attack in ways so small you'll hardly notice it. Tiny temptation. So when it comes, we have to be wise and just say, this is all I want you to do is when that happens, that temptation arises, just say, where is this coming from? And then tell them to get lost. Pray one of those psalms he prayed at the elders' meetings. Um, You know, uh, an imprecatory psalm against the enemy, against the devil. Break his teeth. Throw him into a pit. Bind him. Defang him. That's in the Psalms. Tell him to get lost. 
I want this to be a vision for our church. Why? You know, it's so pleasant how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The Lord there commands a blessing, like oil running down the beard, like the dew on Mount Hermon. It is wonderful to experience to be in a church like that. That's, a, that's why it should be part of our vision. Because it's so joyful. It, it, in that kind of fellowship, we begin to experience in human relationships the way God loves us. I think that's God's plan. You know, we can have mystical experiences of God. We can have amazing communion with him in prayer and feel close to him and know that he loves us and accepts us, all that sort of thing. But a massive part of experiencing the grace of God towards us is through our fellowship in church. It's wonderful. When we're united in that way, God sends his Holy Spirit and we experience his manifest presence and we are filled with the gifts of the Spirit. We're able to minister to one another in wonderful ways. But you know, as good and joyful and pleasant as it is together, that's not the end goal. The end goal is that out of that communion flows the power to share the gospel. It's the big thing. It's the mission we're called for. We're not just saved for our own sake. We're not just saved to, to be healed, for Jesus to do the miracles here that he's done everywhere else. We're saved so that we can hear his voice when he comes together and says, this is the day of the Lord, this is the, the day of his jubilee, that we can join in with him. What did the Nazarenes miss in their anger? They missed the invitation. Today is the day when God will fulfill all his plans through you, to, that you might be the means of salvation to others. What an incredible opportunity. What a, a joyful opportunity. That is what God is inviting us to do. As we love one another, the ground is prepared for the gospel. Like soil, hard soil being broken up. When we love one another, Jesus says, people will believe that the Father has sent me. That's not a gloss on scripture, that's a quote. When we love one another, when people get saved, they'll come into a peaceful harbour. Out from the storm-tossed seas, out from the dr- sense of drowning and panic that is, in, that is out there in the nations outside of Christ and into the harbour of the church where there's peace and joy and the presence of God. So we finish with Jesus' escape from the crowd. They uh, seize him and they go to throw him from the clifftop. This is uh, part of that prophetic symbol that Luke is highlighting. Despite their anger and misunderstanding, Jesus is able to, is able to fulfill his mission. Of course, that's a picture of the triumph of the cross. Despite that decisive rejection of the Messiah, God is able to fulfill his, his mission. When uh, When people finally grabbed hold of Jesus, seized him decisively when they killed him, when he chose to lay down his life. In doing so, at that very moment, he revealed his glory. He revealed his love and God raised him and seated him at his right hand and he gave him all authority in heaven and earth. He's delivered. That same protection and glorious triumph is what awaits the church that walks in love. Love for one another. Acceptance that turns into affection. Affection that turns into delight. Delight that becomes true oneness in Christ. That love 
is the thing that will enable us to escape our enemies and be triumphant. That love is the thing that turns all the plans of the enemy into triumphs for the kingdom. That's what will enable pagans to see that our God is the living God. That's what will enable us to be a light for the nations. That's what will commend the gospel to those who oppose us. They'll say, they'll see our good deeds and although they accuse us for our morals and our behaviour and whatever else they accuse us of, they will praise God in the day of his visitation. It's that love that when we face persecution will redden the heavens and give us the vision of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. It's that love that will enable us to endure the greatest of trials. That will enable the church to overcome whatever tribulation comes. More than overcome. Lift the banner. Lift the banner high over the world. The message of the cross. People will see. They will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And nations will come. They'll come to his mountain. They'll come to hear his law. They'll come to bow the knee at his throne. They'll come to worship Christ. And it's love that will raise us up to him. Amen. Let's pray.